welcome to Castles and Cryptids, where the castles are haunted and the cryptids are cryptic as fuck. And also sometimes pretty darn cute. <laughs> Their little <laughs> sticky little legs. Because <laughs> we can't stop talking about the hugog, or however yeah. I decided to say it. <laughs> but if you haven't heard that, go back to last week and yeah. enjoy cold ass crazy cryptids or whatever i decided to call it (laughs) yeah it was a fun Um, episode it was i laughed a lot actually editing it (laughs) so that's how you know it's a good one you're like oh my god (laughs) good job you (laughs) or i thought you were that funny kills (laughs) yeah yeah the cryptids one are always fun just based on descriptions or what people have drawn on the internet it's always fun to look at and talk about yes yeah even when they're scary they're kind of fun (laughs) yeah exactly i mean bat squatch was kind of scary kind of (laughs) sexy yeah like why why does he have to have like an eight pack (laughs) because he works out with mothman like like the two guys on litter kenny that are jim bros (laughs) riley yeah Oh, they're so funny. I never know which is which. (laughs) No, I have no idea. Honestly, I think people might have that problem with us sometimes, too. I'm not too sure. Um, I posted a picture of you. What was it? Last time you were at my house. Was that for your birthday? Yeah. Yeah, would have been. Okay, so yeah, I was having you hold up our little cornbread skulls that we made (laughs) skull muffin tin and then someone commented something like hi beautiful or something i was like well i don't know what to say Uh, that's that one's not me this time um and sometimes like people kind of get like that on instagram which can kind of be a little weird you're like this isn't tinder but thanks (laughs) yeah weird it can be so yeah but yeah anyway you uh you're beautiful and they know it Dang. and sometimes <laughs> i'm like okay that's me yep or like there was one anyway it doesn't matter i think one where you were in the hot tub and someone like my dad's ex was like oh you're so cute Atlanta, or something i was like yeah that's not me <laughs> but that's kelsey <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so guys, Kelsey is the one with the curly hair, if you're new yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> Alana has straight hair. Uh, <laughs> exactly, I no yeah. longer have red hair anymore, so Alana's the one with red hair. Yep, it's usually at least a shade of darkish red. Um, yeah. Which was so funny, because I, I think I told my friend to just go look on our website, because she had asked what you looked like. She was like, what's a picture of Kelsey? My friend yeah. Chris. Hi, Chris, if you're still listening, because you just started. But (laughs) she was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, I kind of pictured more of a bubbly blonde or something. And I was like, bubbly, but not blonde. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's weird how you get a picture in your mind of someone, though. Yeah. And then you're like, oh. (laughs) I watched, well, I guess normally, like, I'm so used to going to people's I guess website pages to listen to podcasts so I normally have gone uh, through like their about yeah. page or oh, looked really? at their pictures so I normally right away 
kind of yeah. know what that person looks like. So when I'm listening, I have an idea, like, uh, crimes and consequences. I know what both of them look like in person, and I know yeah. their voices, because they have two not quite similar voices, but, like, two distinct yeah. enough. You could tell them apart. Oh, for but sure. Especially after I watched, some time, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I watched an episode that they did that was I think in conjunction with something else and it was like recorded where you could see them talking for the whole episode and I still like watching it I was like I've seen your faces I knew what you would look like this whole time (laughs) but I can still not match the voice to the person so even listening back I can picture both of them together but I can't picture like which one's actually talking at any given time yeah I've had that too I think I'm like did I just like build up a weird vague picture in my mind where they like don't have a face kind of like when you're reading a book and you're like oh that guy's just hot and then like you forget like (laughs) their specific features are so you just kind of have like like in a dream like just a blur (laughs) yeah and you're like attractive spirit of person (laughs) I know I'm like, I don't have to picture it that hard. And my imagination sucks, so... <laughs> yeah. I'm not one to, like, imagine a whole bunch when I read, so... Well, yeah, um... My daughter I'm normally just... more focused on the story than, like, what people in the surroundings look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mind's eye sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a thing, as uh, Dylan says on Modern Family you don't really have a mind's eye (laughs) just like he's like my heart of hearts which is not real by the way after he goes to nursing school (laughs) but like i'm like i can't picture things very well in my mind's eye and then my daughter was saying oh some people like did you know have a thing where they can't picture anything at all like picture an apple in their mind and i was like no i didn't know that i just know that i have a hard oh. time if someone's like this is the layout of the house yeah. in the book and i'm like i've never seen a house like that i'm having a hard time not picturing a house i know <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like tv ruined my imagination <laughs> yeah it's okay i feel like that stuff like isn't oh i get along just fine yeah <laughs> i read tons of books still <laughs> um and on that note, I don't know, but you guys know I'm Alana. <laughs> I'm Kelsey. Kelsey. And I'm She's sick again. Kelsey. Yeah, I was going to say. If you haven't <sighs> noticed or been able to tell yet. I can see, I can hear a stuffed nose, Kelsey, but yeah. It's yeah. not that bad. Not like I can read my notes. <laughs> yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> Yeah, but the weather's changing here, and so that was throwing yeah. me all out of whack, too. Yeah. Yeah. My niece is just too cute. How am I supposed to stay away from her? <laughs> so I was playing with her and, you know, holding her and looking after her a lot on Sunday when we were had our family get together. And yeah, Aww. she was sick, and basically <laughs> she coughed into my mouth and... I was like, I knew I was going to get sick. It was just a matter of time. So, yeah. God, it sounds like a a movie. (laughs) Like, 
you know, someone picks up baby. Oh, you're so cute. They like vomit all over them or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're like, great. Oh, but you're cute though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were talking about her in the last episode and then saying she was making pterodactyl noises. I said, oh, Pat, you remember? Brain had a pterodactyl phase and he went, oh, yeah, but she really more made the noise. And I was like, no, a pterodactyl phase, not a pterodactyl face. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Don't. Well, what are we talking about this week? <laughs> Besides a random banter. <laughs> uh, we are talking about, I guess, arson cases, or in my case, serial <laughs> arson. Because it's... Ooh. Yeah. Whole lot of fires. Uh-huh. You guys don't get the spotlight as much. Well, not that we want the criminals to, but there's no. a shit ton of arson cases, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, <laughs> there is. And I recently uh, was watching, because I had never watched the show when it was on Criminal Minds. And yeah, okay. I'm going back and watching it for the first time. And I'm almost done season two, I think it is. And they just did a big arson episode. So they were getting into the psychology of arsonists. And they said most arsonists, Mm -hmm. I guess, at least in this show, uh, they aren't intending to, like, hurt people. It's normally just about, like, the fire. And if people get injured... That's typically, like, an unintended, like, byproduct of being a serial arsonist. It's more about the fire and setting them than it is about burning people. That makes sense. It's not the most efficient way to necessarily kill someone. Definitely. Um, But, yeah, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, You're like, okay, so... Yeah. You're like on your way to being a serial killer, or like this is just your fun time. <laughs> You're a yeah. bit of a pyro. Like, what is the scale here? It's it's a sliding scale. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I'm ready. I'm ready for the case. I'm sure everyone else is. <laughs> yeah, I had told you what mine was, so we knew we weren't covering the same one. Um, I just know that yours is, yeah, I think yours is more of a repeat offender, where mine is more of a one and done. Oh. So we'll get both sides. Cool. Yeah. I'm cracking a, I'm cracking into it. (laughs) I'm holding on to my butt. (laughs) Uh, So my case has been nicknamed, or I guess dubbed, the Pillow Pyro. Right. Yeah. It's like a weird name that sounds semi-comforting because of the pillow yeah. part. But then, you know, you lose it in the second. Yeah. <laughs> so Southern California was plagued by a series of arsons from, I think, early 1980s to basically 1991 that... Oh, wow. Yeah, so about 11 years span, and it costs millions and millions of dollars of damage, and also ultimately led to the death of four people. Oh, shit. Yeah. 
the first one occurred on October 10th, 1984, in South Pasadena, California. A major fire broke out in an Ohl's Home Center hardware store that was located mm. inside of a shopping center. Oh, probably a lot of wood in there. <laughs> yeah, it's... It was hard to get details about these. Apparently, a lot of these were set in fabric stores. Um, I think that's where, like, the pillow part of it came in because it was a lot of linens, fabrics, and everything that were targeted so that they oh were com combusted, fuel the fire, and spread it very quickly. Yeah. Like, watch yeah. out Fabric Land or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that stores I used to go to. <laughs> Buy bolts of fabric. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the four deaths that occurred in the Pillow Pyro case are actually all from this instance. Uh, oh. So, the sh store was completely destroyed by the fire and four people ended up dying. Those who died in the blaze were 50-year-old Ada Dell, or Deal, along with her grandson, who was two-year-old Matthew Troidel. Oh my god. Yeah. Two years old. Uh-huh. There was a 26-year-old mother of two named Carolyn Krauss and Jimmy Satina, who was a 17-year-old employee of the store. Holy shit. Yeah. He's pretty young, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's at least the only four deaths that occur with the case, but still tragic that it happened and that was at the uh, the fabric store uh place called Ohl's home center hardware oh sorry okay right yeah hardware. uh that one comes up quite a bit just because like linking back um it's probably one of the most important ones because of the deaths so yeah the following day arson investigation took off in the area and they began reviewing the destroyed store and pretty quickly they declared the cause to be actually an electrical fire and they presumed okay. that there was no foul play hmm yeah however so they, uh, thought. <laughs> so they thought yes uh however a local arson investigator named john orr he insisted that the cause of the fire was arson and Orr was later determined to be correct, and further investigations did end up revealing that the fire was deliberately started, and the highly flammable polyurethane products that were sold in the store, which catch fire very, very quickly, uh, were set intentionally and caused the fire to flash over very rapidly, so it spread, like, just whoosh through the area crazy i mean you wouldn't think necessarily it would be a top target like for a terrorist or anything per se yeah but it is still like if you're an arsonist i guess you know what's flammable and whatever yeah so they pick their target <laughs> Jeez. yeah and then in, a few years later in january 1987 this jumps around quite a bit mm. um there was a convention for arson investigations that was held in California in the city of Fresno. 
During this convention, there were several suspicious fires that were set in Bakersfield. These other fires, as well as the recent discovery of a single unmatched fingerprint that arson investigators had recovered, it was left on a piece of notebook paper that was found as part of a time delay incendiary device. So he was, like, not just lighting stuff on fire and, like, leaving. Like, it was a device that would buy him some time and then it would start uh, a fire that would spread. Yeah, like, kind of how you have, like, a bomb that has, like, a fuse attached to it that has to get down before it actually gets in there. Ooh, yeah, that's smart so that you can get out or he can get out. Uh, So because of this little fingerprint on this notebook paper, this led Captain Marvin G. Casey of the Bakersfield Fire Department um. To suspect that it was actually an arson investigator specifically in the Los Angeles area that was responsible for these fires. This was because there was more fires always seemed to be set during these conventions when they were being held in different towns like that town and nearby towns around them. Suddenly all their fires would like increase exponentially just like in general. Yeah. But like who would necessarily pick up on that connection if you're not looking for it. Yeah, this gentleman did, Captain Marvin G. Casey. He really, like, led the case really well. And yeah. Captain Casey? Yeah. <laughs> Hats off to you. <laughs> yeah. In March of 1989, there was another series of arsons that were committed along the California coast, in close proximity with another arson investigators conference that was being held this time in Pacific Grove, California. Mm. And because of this, again, investigators like reaffirmed that they thought it was an arson investigator that was actually setting the fires. And they went through and actually compared the list of attendees from the Fresno conference with the attendees for this Pacific Grove conference And that led Captain Casey to be able to create a short list of just 10 suspects that they could focus on. Wow, that really narrows it down. Yeah. Unfortunately, everyone on the list had their fingerprints taken, and one by one they were compared to the one found on the unburnt notebook paper, and one by one, all 10 were eliminated. No, really? Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. In the early 1990s, leading into 1991, yet another series of fires broke out along the Southern California, this time in a more metropolitan and like populated area. Mm-hmm. This resulted finally in a huge task force uh, being built and they nicked him, nicknamed it the Pillow Pyro Task Force named after the arson fires being set using pillows and like other fabrics uh, Okay. and their focus guess... was going to be like finding the arsonist right is it that me or does that name make it sound like more cutesy somehow 
pillow pyro. Yeah. I know it's what he was using. Like, I get I think that. it's just the alliteration of it because they also Ugh, had yeah. additional nicknames, which these two don't make sense to me. What's they that? sound worse. Uh, additional <laughs> nicknames were Fritito Bandito. Frito Bandito. Uh, okay. Yeah. I don't even know what that makes means. more sense in Spanish. It, yeah. uh, it sounds very familiar. <laughs> uh, as well as coin tosser. Like, what? To- like flipping a coin. Coin tosser. I That's don't know. strange. <laughs> Seems to have nothing to do with this, because as far as I know, there's no coins involved. It's not like he was flipping a coin, <sighs> or they were flipping a coin being like, am I going to set the fire or not? Like, Weird. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's the names sometimes, like, okay, Pillow Pyro, maybe it's especially, and I know, like, it's usually the media that gives, like, the yeah. the killers their, ooh, cool names, like the Night Stalker and stuff, and you're like, that doesn't make them cool, but, um, okay, the Pillow Pyro, it does remind me of something that was on Clerks 2, <laughs> which, have you seen that movie? No, never watched it. Um, all you really need to know is that they were working in like a McDonald's type of fast food joint. It's called Moobies. <laughs> it's like oh. a cow mascot. And this one guy is working with the older guy and he's teasing him that you've never had sex. And well, because my girlfriend says that the little troll that lives in her mouth won't let us kiss. What? And the one that's in her pants is called Pillow Pants. <laughs> and he makes sure that nothing can happen. It's just... What the hell? It's so... I don't know. It's so funny. <laughs> that's weird. And she's like, what? The other girl's like, what the fuck? <laughs> that is not a thing. Wow. Anyway, they also make fun of him for being like super nerdy and loving Lord of the Rings and it's 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 good times but that's the pillow pyro was a little bit making me think of pillow pants and i don't want it to because it's not fun yeah but no. <laughs> it's like oh no pillow pyro you make it sound like a kid's toy or something right when they give it yeah. that kind of name yeah yeah it's a little Oopsie. weird <laughs> so next on march 29 1991 there was Tom Campazano of the Los Angeles Arson Task Force. Ooh. And he had actually made and circulated a flyer at a meeting at one of the fire investigators regional strike team or first. Oh, um, that's a good acronym. Yeah. <laughs> and it was an organization formed by a group of smaller cities in and around the Los Angeles County that did not have their own staff of arson investigators. And okay. this flyer described the modus operandi of the suspected serial arsonist in the Los Angeles area. Ooh, what's his MO? Uh, I have it a bit later after oh. I reveal who it is. Yeah. There's some okay, more details. Well, so it obviously has to do with pillows and stuff, like we said. Yeah, it's a okay. fabric. Yeah. Um. So, 
Scott Baker of the California State Fire Marshal's office was at the meeting when the flyer was handed out, and he told Campazano about a series of arsons investigated by uh, that Captain Casey, as well as Casey's suspicions that the perpetrator was an arson investigator from the Los Angeles area. Right. Mm-hmm. Campazano and two of his colleagues met with Casey and got a copy of that fingerprint that Casey had recovered off that unburnt notebook paper. Nice. And they ran it through the database one more time, and finally it came back with a match. Oh my god, finally. Yeah. <laughs> On April 17th, 1991, with the help of improved fingerprint technology and cross-referencing the print with a database of all past just applicants for law enforcement positions in the Los Angeles County. So I think they have to submit it if they're applying for law enforcement and probably something to do with like fire and stuff like that. Anything of that authority. I've had to do a police check just to work in this certain department, right? So I'm sure they had to do a a hard police check where they got fingerprinted yeah. to get into the force. Okay. Yeah. So uh Campazano and two of his colleagues met with Casey. Oh, already did that. Uh, where did I go? Referencing oh law enforcement in Los Angeles County. Plate. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's like, what? <laughs> police check. <laughs> yeah, I have to get them for a lot of things. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah so they cross reference this and finally learned the identity of the pillow pyro the Mm. fingerprint was an exact match to do you want to try and guess who it is I've said their name I've said their name once but I didn't draw much attention to it I know and I think I might even know from a like it sounds so familiar yeah it's a big popular the top fire guy the top investigator no. that said it kept that said it was probably a fire investigator okay okay oh no. not quite no okay close okay. it is arson investigator john Orr. that at the old oh. home uh that center fire and he was they all were gonna close it saying it's not suspicious and he's like nope it's definitely arson you need to list it as arson it was him Okay, okay, yeah. okay. I thought I'm a little confused, but that might be who I think I meant. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, but yeah, because like he calls attention to himself, basically. Yeah. Then he's like, because he wants credit. Oh he my wants God. them not to brush it aside, even though four people died. Oh, okay, I feel like I might have heard this covered a long time ago on something. Like, it sounds like Probably. vaguely familiar in that way where you're like, you're listening to it as if it's for the first time, but you're like, is yeah. it that arson guy? Like, he's one of the fire <laughs> fighters or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty crazy because you're like, yeah, they like to go back and be at the scene of the crime criminals, but. Yeah. This one's like, pretty famous, I, so probably a lot of people have heard of it. Yeah. It's still so mind-boggling. Like, you'd still have to make your way into the the force or whatever. Yeah. And then, and then do crazy. all this shit. Yeah, like, it's so cocky. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into all that stuff. 
So the fingerprint that they found on the notebook paper was a match to John Orr's left ring finger. Uh. Um, getting into John's or Orr's life. Uh, John Leonard Orr was born April 26, 1949 in Los Angeles, California. And he was one of three boys in the family. Their parents had got divorced when they were pretty young. I don't know what age. Okay. Uh, the next bit of information I could find just said after graduating high school, he had joined the U.S. Air Force in 1967 and had shipped out for basic training. Uh, he had later transferred okay. to an Air Force firefighting school. Okay, so pretty much like when he turned 18, he was yeah. like joining. Okay. Uh, he was stationed in Spain in 1970, where he married his high school, uh, high school girlfriend and was later transferred to Montana. You were going to say high school sweetheart, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, they went to Montana. Damn, yeah. that's just south of us. Yeah. I'd like to go there someday. <laughs> it's pretty nice even in the summer if you aren't going. My brother went okay. the first time, I think, to go snowboarding and stuff. But even in the summer, it's beautiful there. I could see that. Yeah. I'm like, I like Southern Alberta. It's just like more Southern Alberta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then keep going and then you hit Colorado and like, oh yeah, the Rocky Mountains area is yeah. just beautiful. Uh, so after going to Montana, he was honorably discharged from the Air Force in April of 1971. Uh, honorably. Okay. Yeah. And That's it didn't good. say what for, <laughs> but on reflecting on his time in the military, or later said that he didn't like his commanding officers. Mm. Um, didn't say anything more than that. I'm sure lots of people didn't get along with their commanding yeah. officers or their COs. Yeah. So Orr returned to Los Angeles and he applied for, applied actually to two police departments and two fire departments. I think the same wow. time maybe while waiting oh, he to hear just back yeah just position of power <laughs> yeah yeah exactly while waiting oh. to hear back from them his wife gave birth to their daughter oh, and okay. or in his first wife divorced not long after she had given birth to their daughter oh yeah around this time or shortly after he was invited to test uh for a position for the LAPD, the police department. Oh, okay. And, yeah. Or ended up passing all of the tests, except for those based on mental health. Oh, didn't no. say why. Yeah, didn't say why he didn't pass them, but it prompted the police department to send him a letter saying that he was unsuitable for the LAPD. Okay. That's not... Great. I'm sure they have a reason to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We want you to be pretty mentally stable if you're working in yeah. law enforcement. <laughs> uh, or then went on to test for the Los Angeles Fire Department, where he went through the fire academy, but struggled with both the written and physical test and was rejected. Or, however, didn't let this get in his way as he was desperate to be a firefighter 
So he applied to the Glendale Fire Department, and he was accepted there in 1974. Oh my gosh, he just keeps trying to see who has, like, the lowest standard. (laughs) Basically, I, if I'm correct in what I'm remembering, it said that Glendale was basically the most underfunded police, or fire department, like, in the area. Um, yeah. Now I feel bad. Because, <laughs> like, oh, they're probably trying to kick, only take what they could get. Oh. Yeah. So during this time, Orr began studying fire science at a local college. During oh. this time, he also worked at a 7-Eleven and at a Sears location as security oh. part-time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like, like almost the weirdest three jobs to have at once. Right? <laughs> yeah. Fire science, Sears, 7 Eleven. Yeah. It's like when Homer has to take a second job because he works at the nuclear power plant usually, but then Lisa really wants a pony. And when yeah. you're whatever, they like get her one for some reason. And then he's like, ends up working at the 7 Eleven until he. Is just like dead on his feet. Yeah. And, uh. and, and, and Apu's like, you don't want to get like I was. I worked for 72 hours straight and I thought I was a hunting bir- hummingbird. And he's just like, mm. <laughs> humming around the store. Yes. That's so it's weird. A great, it's a great episode. <laughs> we we uh. were binging some Simpsons this last weekend and it was amazing. Oh. <laughs> So during this time, Orr also earned a carry permit. So I assume he got a gun, but I don't know much about that or why a fire investigator needs a fucking gun. But yeah, and how it could tie into not passing mental health tests. Yeah, I don't know if they necessarily knew about that. So I think we all know there's a little bit of a broken system there in the U.S. Yeah. With the way that anyone can acquire guns, almost. <laughs> yeah. Um, he also applied and became an arson investigator. He eventually worked up to becoming a captain, but he wasn't oh. Captain Casey. And he later worked as... Wow, this is a confusing sentence. It said he applied and became an arson <laughs> investigator. He eventually became a captain and later worked as an arson investigator. Cool. A captain. <laughs> He's the top investigator. He's the most arsonist okay. investigatorist <laughs> of them all. It's like when we mm. said that we were doing the most killiest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of death. Oh, great. All of the killing. So you had asked about Aura's modus operandi. And this is it. There isn't, I guess it's not as detailed as I would have liked. It said that it was Mm. setting fires using an incendiary timing device, usually comprising of a lit cigarette with three matches wrapped in like ruled or like lined yellow writing paper and secured by a rubber band. So I don't know if... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think the cigarettes like bur- burned out and then it lit the matches which would light the paper or something. Okay, yeah. There's three cigarettes. Yeah. Or 
one cigarette, match. three one matches, cigarette. and then this paper. Honestly, I bet that like that paper, the yellow lined paper is thinner yeah. and like more Probably. conducive to like starting a fire than other ones. I'm terrible if I have to be the one to try and start my own stupid bonfire. Oh, see, I'm <laughs> I'm a self-described me. pyro. I could stare at fire I all like day. It. I love fire. I love starting fires. I love huge fires. I need your help sometimes. I'm out there with my little bick and then like nobody wants to come have a bonfire with me, Pat. (laughs) So then I'm trying to like light my little kindling and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Um, My sister-in-law told me the best fire starter ever is dryer lint, which is true. It's why you always got to clean out your lint traps. Right. Because they can start a fire in your dryer just from the heat and everything, but I could uh, save some of that, yeah. Yeah, she keeps a little bit of it, and then she uses that to light because it just whoosh, like <laughs> lights up. Yeah, good. And then if you put a bit of paper and stuff over top of it, it'll stay lit like just mm. a, long enough because you need it lit long enough to light the wood, or it's just gonna burn up, and then the wood won't have time. To, it like, may have been kind of windy last time I tried. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's so that's kind of. Yeah, that's kind of what he's doing in this. It said these devices usually were deposited in densely populated linen stores and left to slowly burn until it ignited the linen around them. Really? And that's the only reason he picked those stores was because they were more flammable? Basically. Great. I believe so. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't vendettas against these stores or anything like that. Right. Uh, the subsequent fire would spread pretty quickly through the linen pillowcases, sleeping bags, or fabrics, resulting in uncontrollable fires, which caused pretty big devastation. As I had said at the beginning, it was millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. And during this time, other smaller fires were also started in open grassy hills in order to draw, um... I said it was in order to draw firefighters away from those that was set in the stores. Um, okay. So that those would be left unattended because people would already be fighting a fire over here. But oh, no. I don't know if that was yeah. like how I was interpreting what was going on or if that's actually what the intention was. Because there's literally so to... many fires that he said it's outrageous. Ooh. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that so would they... divide their attention for sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. Seems like yeah, a good exactly. plan. But, like, yeah, God, how ambitious is he? He's like, I'm going to run over here and set a fire, and then I'm going to run over there. Like, yeah. <laughs> by the sounds of it. Um, like, okay. <laughs> from the website, thetruecrimedatabase.com, it had a little thing which was very specific. I don't know if this is actually true. So I wanted to source it. It said, quote, okay. he often arrive at the scene of a fire, stroke his mustache whilst looking no. up the sky, and then point to an area, declaring it to be the point of origin. Considered an expert by his peers with an uncanny ability to determine the cause of deliberate cases of arson, he was right more often than not about the circumstances of where the fire began and how it spread so quickly. He often wrote articles for May. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I continued it because they kind of talked about this on that site as well, saying that he often wrote articles for magazines about the series of fires. He conducted interviews with local TV stations where he often reassured the public that they were doing everything they could to catch the culprit. Oh my god, what an yeah. ass. <laughs> he was like, it's okay, everything's gonna be okay, we are on the case, I'm the one setting the fires. Like, like vibes of those criminals that are in healthcare, whether they're a nurse or a doctor or whatever, and they like, some of them will just put something in the IV to just yes. start a cardiac arrest, oh. arrest or whatever to try and yes. save the patient and look really good. Not oh. that they're, yeah, not that their end goal is to kill them. They more like, they're like, oh no, I just want to like look good. And you're like, what the fuck? You still have a right? messed up whatever, uh. a power going on. <laughs> like, yeah, that's not 100%. cool. Yeah. yeah, you kill people that way. Oh, people are messed up. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, yeah, so that takes us kind of in his history and what he had going on. So we'll jump back. He um, basically to his arrest or had actually originally appeared on that short list of 10 suspects when they had cross-referenced both those things. He was on that short list, but he okay. had been cleared. Yeah, he had been cleared because his fingerprint didn't match the print at the scene. Oh my but god. Really? I don't understand how because his print at the scene is also how later they confirmed it was him. So yeah. I, yeah. Well, I don't really print that. DNA not always 100%. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. Things can fuck up. That's the scary part too. We think yeah. we know everything now, but <laughs> It's like, you're always still learning. Uh, wow. After this, or was identified as the Pillow Pyro, or after he was in, identified as the Pillow Pyro, he was investigated and watched for several months before they arrested him. Because they, like, they needed something on him to like put him at the scene right. of somewhere. Okay. Uh, authorities ended up hiding a tracking device in his personal vehicle. And in May of 1991, while leaving one of the fire conferences, Orr was found, or Orr found that tracking device. And oh. he didn't know it was a tracking device, so he rushed to a nearby police explosives range, thinking that the tracker was actually a bomb attached to his vehicle. He was, like, freaked the fuck out. I'm sorry, um, how big is this tracker? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. On every FBI show ever, they're tiny, just like all their right? earbuds since yeah. 2000, you know, the year 2000 onward before. I don't know, I'll listen to Office Ladies and they're like, oh my God, Jim and Pam were talking to, Pam, we're talking to each other with Bluetooth and like, that was barely a thing then. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. yes, it really was. <laughs> right? So it's it's really weird. It's like, Okay. Yeah. We can do a lot now, though. <laughs> right? When I was rewatching Friends and they go through, and I think yeah. it's Chandler's talking about having a laptop that has Excel, and he's like, I can change the color of the columns. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. That show definitely has um, some stuff that's, you yeah. know, couldn't happen today. <laughs> and you're like, pagers and. 
Oh my Same God, with Seinfeld. The They're like yes. trying to call each other at restaurants. And I'm like, if I went to a restaurant and asked to use their phone, I'd be so embarrassed. But like people used to do it all the time. <laughs> right? Like, is, there a, is there a Steve here? There's a phone call for you, Steve. Like, but I got a cell phone. It wasn't just because I was young. It's because cell phones were still young. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, yeah, so Or thinks this is a bomb. He shows up at this nearby police explosives range. And fortunately, police were able, or police were alerted by first that fire investigators regional strike team. Oh. Um, they like knew that he was headed there. So they called them first and were like, he can't know it's a tracking device. They called them first. Yeah. <laughs> they first it's uh, the best acronym <laughs> yeah it's pretty good and <laughs> uh or was told by them that the device was a hoax that it was fake um, yeah okay. <laughs> um but they kind of covered their ass because or was not aware of a second tracking device that was installed in his city vehicle a few months later in november and investigators were then able to continue to monitor his movements. Oh, really? Yeah, this time in his work vehicle. So, well they being monitored. Put it under his skin. <laughs> right? Uh, I'm sorry. I've been watching too much Blind Spot where they, <laughs> the FBI and the criminals do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so while he was being monitored or was tracked to the location of another suspect, or I guess the first suspicious fire that they were tracking okay. him. Uh, what? Oh, okay. Yeah. So once <laughs> he was found, I was like, my next part of this sentence is comma and a federal grand jury handed down an indictment. <laughs> I was like, how does this make um, um, <laughs> So, yeah, once they could put him at the location of this suspicious fire, a federal grand jury handed down an indictment to have him arrested. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. (laughs) And then Orr was finally arrested on December 4th, 1991, and he was charged with arson for a series of fires not related to the 1994 South Pasadena Oles fire that killed four people. This was, like, separate. Because they couldn't... Um, even though they had his fingerprint for that one or something, I think it was. Um, or maybe that was the one where they didn't have the fingerprint match. Yeah, maybe that was. It was kind of confusing with these. There wasn't a lot of details yeah. about the specific fires. Yeah. Um, one of my sources, I didn't include any of it, but one of my sources had a really nice write-up about like what happened in the Oli's fire and like people's last words and like how their days were going and had like really good backstories but I felt like this was too much already and then that would be like really sad but I'll have it on the the sources page if anyone wants to read it I don't know how factual it is but that stuff can be good details but like it can also be a lot (laughs) yeah Yeah, because it was just about the one but Mm -hmm. yeah so Orr's finally arrested and after he's arrested, it's kind of weird. Another thing that comes about with this case is the fact that Orr had actually been writing uh, okay. the manuscript for a novel that oh, was called right Points up. of Origin. 
And oh my god, right. Okay, yes, yeah. that sounds familiar. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I'm just gonna write this novel about yeah. points of origin, fires, and how they start. <laughs> Great. So it was uh it was a fiction, right? Not nonfiction. So confusing. Yeah, <laughs> Quote fiction. unquote. It was published as a fiction. <laughs> it, as far as I could tell at first, I thought it was published at this time, but I guess it was just a manuscript that mm. after he was arrested was later published. Because I think you can read it. Oh, um, gosh. Oh, that's kind of. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, you probably if you read it now who gets the money i suppose <laughs> anyway. yeah hopefully not him yeah <laughs> uh so this whole manuscript was found and reviewed because people were confused so or had written this manuscript with details um which follows the story of a fireman who is also right. a serial arsonist with a that's few- like Mark Twitchell. Well, I was just writing yeah. a screenplay about a serial killer right? who acts just like me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not me. <laughs> um, he had written multiple copies of the manuscript of this book with a few variations between each one. Okay. Um, I think the final one follows the acts of arson, multiple arson cases, and bears several striking similarities with the real life 1984 Oli's fire, um, the one that the four people died in, and it contained a highly detailed description of that similar fire. Um, the first manuscript, and not the later ones, the first one uses the exact same device that Orr used in that fire. While later manuscript versions, he changed the device slightly. I think like wow. sometimes it was matches in between, sometimes it wasn't, sometimes it was a cigarette, sometimes it wasn't, stuff like that. Okay, um, it's like, what's the point of that? He, I think, yeah, he maybe saw this coming, uh, but still not great about covering okay. his tracks. <laughs> um, I'll wait till the end. <laughs> yeah. When this was brought up to Orr, he just stated that the novel was a work of fiction it had no relation to any actual events that happened. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right? Defending, defending his manuscript or expressly stated, quote, the character of Aaron Stiles is a composite of arsonists that I arrested. Aaron Stiles? Was that his name? Yeah, oh, Aaron what? Stiles. Oh my god. A- Aaron. He's Harry Stiles' uh, older brother. <laughs> All I could think of was that Key and Peele sketch. A A Roll. Oh, okay. I don't really know that one, but they are hilarious. Oh, they're just <laughs> so they're um Keegan Michael Key is being a substitute teacher and he's intentionally saying all both in the thing, he's intentionally saying all the kids' names wrong. But oh like in real life, this is just how he thinks they're pronounced. So he's like, A A Ron. A.A. Ron, are you here? A.A. Ron, put your hand up. It does kind of sound familiar. Also, he's just fucking hilarious. And then it, like, goes on, but it's just, like, oh, just, like, (laughs) he just says a name, and then eventually the kids are, like, are you trying to say, like, Stephen? And it's, like, he's, like, yeah, Stephen! (laughs) Stephen! (laughs) 
Yeah, it's just like so over the top. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I love it. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah, a take on all of the mispronunciation of all the names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kelsey? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's all so, I got to mispronounce yours. <laughs> uh, after much of a deliberation, after Orr was arrested, a uh, federal jury in Fresno convicted Orr of three counts of arson on July 31st, 1992, and he had been charged with and acquitted of two other counts of arson. Don't oh. remember the details on that, but Judge three. Oliver uh, Wanger sentenced Orr to 30 years in prison. During this time, Orr maintained his innocence and continues to maintain it. However, he did not enter a guilty plea, or however, he did enter a guilty plea agreement on March 24th, 1993, on three more additional counts of arson after reaching a plea deal that would get him paroled from federal prison in 2002. Um, Oh, so he pled guilty. Yeah, he did end up pleading guilty. He took this plea deal after he learned that he could not afford a defense um like maybe a defense representative other than the yeah. state i guess and he did not stand a good chance at trial with like an actual jury um <laughs> not if you're guilty usually yeah. <laughs> jesus so later in november 21st 1994 state prosecutors indicted for on four counts of first degree murder with special circumstances and 21 counts of arson for a string of fires between 1984 and 1990. That's a lot. Yeah. You don't even know the half of it. There's so many. Uh, Lead prosecutor was seeking, or the lead prosecutor was seeking the death penalty in order to ensure Orr would spend the rest of his life in prison. Uh, Mm -hmm. This lead prosecutor later made an off-the-record offer to Orr um, in which he would accept life without parole, and he confessed to all of these acts of arson in open court dating back to his youth. Um, so, like, yeah. just basically own up to everything they said, and we'll take, um, you'll basically just spend the rest of your life in prison. Yeah. Prosecutors would take the death penalty Great. off the table as well. They would stop pushing for that. Okay. And or turn actually ended up turning this offer down. Um so yeah. it went to a jury and a jury in California wow. state courted or court convicted or on all of the four murder charges and all but one arson count on June 25th, 1998. Wow. Uh they again were seeking the death penalty but the jury came back 8 to 4 in favor. And the judge sentenced Orr to four consecutive terms of life without parole for the murders and an additional 21 years in prison for the arsons. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay, so they called it murders because he set the purposeful arsons that killed the four people. So he got yeah, charged as murder Yeah, that one's for murder for that. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. that makes sense. I mean, you fucking yeah. killed people, including a toddler. Like, yeah, exactly. You didn't not know. Yeah, you're yeah. not 
not culpable for that. You knew what was like, going to happen. Or yeah, happen. in a store that was open with customers, you knew that yeah. was a chance that could happen. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. just trying to buy a fucking bolt of fabric to complete their craft, and yeah, you know, now they're never going to see that holiday or whatever. It's like, god damn it. Yeah. Um. His all these uh sentences that he had would run consecutively with his federal sentence for arson so he had to finish that first and then he would start this sentence so it was basically like he's gonna be in prison for the rest of his life Um, okay good yeah so jumping ahead to march 15th 2000 the california court of appeals vacated nine years of his state sentence after finding that the burning home, the burning of homes in the College Hills fire, she didn't talk about how I said he started like a bunch of fires in like just dry bush fires okay. kind of shit. Well, one of them burned down a bunch of houses. Um, Damn. Also likely to happen if you're starting bush fires like an idiot. Sure. Um, yeah. So the California Court of Appeals vacated nine years of his state sentence. After finding that the burning of homes in this College Hills fire had been incidental to his objective of starting a brush fire. Like, it still happened. But it wasn't his intention to start the house fires, but he still started a fire intentionally. Oh my um, gosh. But they got rid of nine That's years semantics of at that point. Yeah. You're splitting hairs. Like, um, you don't know yeah. what's going to catch on fire when you start a fire, but you know you started a fire. Yeah, <laughs> So exactly. you're definitely responsible for that. Yeah, it's Gosh. called consequences. Like, oh, what? totally, yeah. Oh, uh, we're not culpable for this. It's like, yeah, you are. <laughs> so, oh. or began his state sentence after being released from the federal custody sentence in 2002, so... Okay. He's still in custody. However, his name, I guess, doesn't appear on an inmate database, so it suggested that he could be currently being held under some sort of alias. Um, because okay. yeah. Okay. Um, I don't have. I have a bit more. This is just kind of what I found in some stuff. Uh, there was some arson investigators and an FBI criminal profiler. I don't remember who. I don't think it's, um, fuck, what's his name? John. John something. Oh, no, I, sorry. Yeah, not I know who you mean guy. Now. Yeah. I John Douglas. Think. Douglas. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't think it's him because it, I'm okay. pretty sure he would have just said his name if it was, yeah. but. A different FBI criminal profiler actually deemed Orr to possibly be one of the worst American serial arsonists of the 20th century. Okay, wow. There was a federal ATF agent, Mike Matassa, that believes Orr set nearly 2,000 fires between 1984 and 1991. 2,000. Oh my god. That's not even 10 years. Yeah. I don't know what that math breaks down to, but that's it's a lot. It's insane. Yeah. Holy shit. Every other yeah. day you're going out there? Every other week? Like, what the hell? Yeah, between, like, all the bush fires, the store fires, everything else. 2,000. Yeah. 
uh, arson investigators determined that after Orr was arrested, the number of brush fires in the nearby foothill areas decreased by more than 90%. Jesus. Guess we got the right guy. <laughs> yeah, like, holy shit, 90%. Yeah. It's like single-handedly solving crime. Like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um... And among those who covered the trial, there was an award-winning journalist, Frank uh, Gierdot, who actually later collaborated with Orr's daughter, Lori, and Mm -hmm. together they wrote a book about the case. Yeah, so Lori was 17 when her father was arrested, and she later became a motivational speaker. Uh, During the time her father was arrested, she actually testified on his, on behalf of him as defense oh. at the trial and her testimony helped prevent Orr from receiving the death penalty wow she did this because she initially believed her father's innocence for many years but eventually oh. believed he was guilty and broke off and has since broke off all contact with him and says in regards to testifying that she regrets testifying on his behalf because of those four lives that he is ultimately responsible for. Oh, um, but she was 17 at the time. That makes and her daddy her dad. issues harder than ever because yeah. he kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. This was from Wikipedia. It said um, this was talking about that book that they co-wrote together. Um, entitled Burned, which reveals Orr's novel um, Point of Origin had sadomasochistic sex scenes and featured the main character becoming sexually aroused by setting fires. Uh, oh, okay. That's yeah. an insight. <laughs> Orr's, uh, Orr's story was earlier chronicled by best-selling true crime author Joseph Wambaugh. Uh which, if you don't remember, and stupidly, I know, um, <laughs> Ed Kemper was obsessed with Joseph Wambaugh, and that's how he learned, oh. like, how to get away with his things, was watching and reading Joseph Wambaugh. Um, okay. He had covered this case in his book called Fire Lover, um, jumping back to the book Burned that Lori, his daughter, wrote. It features several court documents, fresh interviews with Orr, as well as never-before-revealed evidence. There was a film made called Point of Origin that stars Ray Liotta. I love Ray Oh my Liotta. god, awesome. As <laughs> on him. Orr. Um, it was released by HBO in 2002 uh, as, part as, ha- as part of Hamilton College's Prison Writing Initiative, the American Prison Writing Archive, or was able to publish several autobiographical autobiographical accounts of his experience as a prisoner <laughs> in the American prison complex. Oh wow. So the rest of the stuff that I have is actually from a um an article I read that was called a convicted fire Ar- fireman/arsonist and me. Um, there was part one called The Beginning, and I can't remember what the other part was called. Okay. Um, but it was written by Carrie Antho- Antholus? Antholus. Antholus, I if think. If it's not Carrie um, Ann Moss, then I don't care. No, I'm just kidding. 
Uh, and she had weird like though. a really she had like a two part article that was really interesting. There was some stuff in there that I hadn't read otherwise. And she talked to Orr directly while he was in prison. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, one of his quotes she had by him said, quote, serial arsonists are known to keep logs of their fires or keep pictures of them. And I'm sure they get off on their coverage on the news. Oh. Which I'm sure he did because he had that. Wow. And then, you know, he's if you don't remember, he's doing all those interviews being like, we're on the lookout for this person. Don't you worry. I'm in Very magazines. much returning like, to the scene of the crime. Yeah. yeah. And she said that it. to his face? No, this is what he said. That's what he got quoted as saying. <gasps> During a search of Orr's home and vehicle, it said that investigators collected evidence that included Orr's black canvas, quote-unquote, work bag, uh-huh. That held, among other things, including a pack of unfiltered camel cigarettes, two books of matches, a cigarette lighter, a plastic baggie containing rubber bands, and seven paper bags. Um, yeah, not all of those are just because you smoke. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he even smoked at all. Yeah, but you could get away with saying you had cigarettes yeah. and a lighter by saying that you smoked, whereas it's yeah. like, then I just have a bunch of paper bags because I'm going to do some crafts. No. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And some rubber bands. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Martha Stewart. I'm MacGyver. <laughs> behind the driver. Kick your ass with these. <laughs> Behind the driver's seat and under the floor mat of Orr's Glendale FD car, the investigators found a steno pad of yellow lined paper. Yes. I know what a steno pad is. Yeah, like a notepad. Okay. Uh, They found videotapes of various fires. They found two drafts of Orr's novel, like two different drafts. Okay. Um, Yeah. This was all that was found, like that they found as evidence the earlier dated Mm. draft of only three chapters in which the delaying device is described as a match attached to a cigarette placed inside a paper bag a later dated complete draft of the novel in which or has removed the matches and the paper bag and turned it into a bead of glue on a cigarette (laughs) To hold it i guess i don't really know it's not too clear okay so whatever uh, the details are slightly different than in yeah the book or whatever yeah sure. okay um there's copies of letters from or to prospective literary agents and publishers <laughs> along with a copy of the manuscript of his novel which includes the following passages oh so this is what he's lit like, this is literally what he typed out to be like, you guys, as literary agents, should publish my manuscript. Oh, no. Um, so I'm this is little... my drink here. Yeah, this <laughs> is ready. little blurbs he wrote at different times to different publishers. Are you ready? The first okay. one. <laughs> points. <laughs> points. Not even points of origin, but points. Is the story of oh, a Oh, so not bullet points? but No. Okay. Gotcha. Points. Uh, is the story of a serial arsonist and the investigator who tracks him in Southern California. Aaron, a- Aaron, the arsonist, <laughs> is actually a firefighter. A- Aaron? Aaron? What is it? No. Aaron. It should be Aaron. Okay. 
Um, Aaron the arsonist is actually a firefighter, and Phil Langtree slowly develops the theory that the suspect is somehow related to the fire department. Oh god, really? Um, a different read, my arsonist is sexually slash psychologically motivated, and points is somewhat fact-based. There is an arsonist playing his trade in the West, and he sets the same type of fires portrayed in my novel. Playing his trade in the West? <laughs> it's the same as my yeah. novel? Okay, two on uh, those there, buddy. Another one said, my novel is fiction, but is based on a real arsonist, who has again hit the LA area earlier this year, doing over $12 million in damage. The investigation- but I happened to write a book about it. Yeah. That's not true. Okay. The investigation now has federal assistance and could be linked to fires outside California. It is my feeling that the arsonist could be a firefighter, but I'm not directly linked to the investigation and cannot confirm this fact. Oh my god. The, this is literally what protest too much. <laughs> this is literally what he's telling people when he's trying to get his book published. Like, this is ridiculous. It um, couldn't possibly be me, because I am not that far in their squad yeah <laughs> okay um, buddy the last one says my work is fact a fact-based novel of an ongoing investigation where on the west coast a serial arsonist is setting fires throughout the west and is quite possibly a firefighter the series has been going on for fi over five years and i was even considered a suspect at one point <laughs> gasp in early in early May of this year, I found a radio tracking device attached to my car in St. Louis Opisbo while I was what? attending a conference. Ironically, my protagonist experiences the same situation. Oh, so a... ironic. Call up Alanis Morissette. <laughs> oh, I had already it's written this chat. Ironic. Right? <laughs> I had already written the chapter dealing with the protagonist being tailed before I found out I was being followed. By the Did way. Did you? <laughs> You're a genius. Then, uh, I just love this last one. It just says, by the way, I'm not the arsonist and the investigation out here continues. My work is fictional. Oh I love my it so God. much. So, it just sounds like a disclaimer. <laughs> uh, the following stories are not true in any relation to actual d events. Yes. <laughs> Coincidental. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah. I should have ended it with that, but I have a couple quotes. Um, Ooh, this okay. was uh, what Carrie Anthelis had asked him. She had asked him, what I would like you to do is to take me into what you imagine the psychological profile is of the person who set those fires. This was after he was arrested. So they know full um, well. Like, she's basically... But she's like, walk me through. Okay. Um, very, like, Ed Kemper. Of, mm. like, the arsonist, the murderer, would be this. They would feel like this. Right. Um. So John Orr responds, there's pretty much a standard profile on pyromaniac. There are seven different motivations for setting fires. Pyromania is one that's all by itself. The standard profile of a pyromaniac is someone that is very insecure, a loner in particular, mm. 
very different than the two guys you know to get together and set crime diversion fires i think that's like so that you can get away people that like start a fire right. so that they draw attention and get away yeah um, if they committed murder or something <laughs> yeah yeah this guy is by himself and he drives a thrill hmm. from the inadvertent attention that he gets at the fires after the fires have been set he blends into the crowd and stands with the crowd and maybe even gets a little bit gregarious and actually mingles with people in the crowd while normally he would avoid crowds. You know, maybe he's the type that sits down the block sits down the block and with a pair of binoculars and watches the activity in the fire. Damn. Uh, but out of the 40 serial arsonists that I apprehended, the vast majority of them were the loner-type guys. Um, okay. This is a similar quote, but it had different stuff. They were very insecure, typically had drinking problems. If they were the older guys, the younger ones had very difficult times getting along with people. They were bullied and just mm. the standard insecure type of person where the fires became their friends and they were, they felt the importance Aww. And they were, they felt the importance. I mean, I don't understand being, that part. <laughs> yeah. <it's> sad. <laughs> um, by being the center of the inadvertent attention by catching their fires burned, uh, seeing everybody get excited and in turn excited them. I mean, yeah. people want their 15 minutes of fame. And yeah. that's the gross part you see about, like, the mass Definitely wanted it. shooters that are like, yeah. well, as long as my name is mentioned, and kind right. of thing. They don't yeah. say that, but, um, yeah, it's kind of gross. But that's the end on what I have. I do oh. definitely want to um, look up and try and read uh, Lori Orr's book that she write, wrote, Burned, I think yeah. it's called. Um, that sounds good. Yeah, I think it'd be really cool. It goes through, I think, basically her whole life, and I'm sure coming to terms with her dad, like, being this from when she was defending him at the trial and oh, how she feels right. now and everything like that. I think that'd be a cool read because we don't have a lot. There's a lot about, like, them, but not always a lot of people are like to talk about the family of, like, the serial killer or, like, the person mm -hmm. that committed the crimes uh yeah or the yeah. family doesn't want to talk themselves so the yeah brave of her that's pretty cool I, and that is a good point because i did i didn't include it in my notes but she did have a thing that she was talking about the like parents of specifically school shooters and mm. stuff like that she had mentioned that like in her article like one had just happened or whatever and she said I'm she sure. can sort of imagine like what the family's going through because you can often get targeted as the family member of somebody that's committed a crime. Yeah. Uh, and she's often felt targeted um, and stuff like that for what her dad's done when she had no part of it. Like it's definitely yeah. not her fault and she had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So. Uh, Most people yeah. wouldn't even realize, probably. Yeah. I mean, you just told me a whole case on her, but if I saw her walking down the street, or if oh, I yeah. get re reminded what her name was, I'd be like, who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, oh, it's just too bad. Yeah, it's like, 
we don't need that. We all uh, are pretty harsh on each other enough already. We don't need the sins of the father revisited on the Yeah, and the family. The yeah. Yeah, just stop blaming family members or uh-huh. like parents and stuff like that sometimes. Like, it's not always the parents' fault when a kid decides to commit crimes or stuff like that. Like, I know yeah. it always. If you ever hear a case where, like, it's a, um, a parent of the victim then um, reaches out in court and, like, embraces the parent of the perpetrator. And they're like, yeah. I know, you're just, you're losing uh, maybe a son or whatever, just as I lost a daughter because they're going to jail or you're going through yeah. some shit. Like, I'm always like, oh, my God, like how powerful is that that you could, like lose your child to someone else and then embrace their yeah parent it's it amazes on, me uh crimes and consequences they just had a case that was extremely horrific mm. and uh okay it was this young boy he was 21 he had like massacred like this family basically oh because this the parents had said he wasn't allowed to date their daughter anymore who was 16 Oh, and he had well, had like a criminal okay. record. He had a pretty Jeez. bad criminal record and all this stuff. And that they basically sucks. like they didn't want him around anymore. And he waited like a oh. couple months and then he went in when they were sleeping and he like shot them all, including the daughter. Oh and my god. Yeah, it was crazy. And then he ended up like kidnapping because there were seven kids and one of them was a bunch of them were foster kids. And uh, okay. he ended up kidnapping three of the kids and then like raping one of them or whatever. She was oh like 13 or something. And then he let them all go. And that's how the cops found them is because he let them go in this like area and they walked to the nearest house to call the cops. And they're like, who did this? And like, well, like basically my sister's ex, like and all this stuff. Yeah. But they went through and so he had gotten um tried for it and all this stuff and he was sent to prison and um wow. in the community it was a very small community like i'm talking this town is 600 people like it's oh my god tiny and yeah. uh i think i don't think it was the judge or anything or it might have been like the church pastor or something said hate the crime but don't hate the soul of like that person like it's very hard like that kid because he had had problems his whole life so they were saying hate the crime he did but don't hate his soul which i think right or hurt it's a hard way to look at it but i think it is the best way to look at it in the long run hopefully oh yeah mistakes but yeah so hard to hear about people that have turned to that but then so easy to realize that we all have the potential for evil yeah. and violence and terrible things and like pretending that you don't is like <laughs> kind of sticking your head in the sand because yeah. like <clears throat> you know we all put it on Adolf Hitler but like right like it's not like he wasn't influential on all the soldiers and stuff that he had yeah. and how like people can be convinced they're doing right by somebody and... very charismatic and oh, that's yeah sad. we don't always have the same ideas of right and wrong 
I yeah. mean, <laughs> it should be not killing a bunch of people, obviously, but <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. Oh, that's rough. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a, a, thanks. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it's pretty brutal. <clears throat> yeah, it does sound familiar, though. I do think that maybe yeah. I've heard that one at least maybe once before. Not a lot, though. It's like it should get covered more. But yeah, it's been covered quite a few times, but I don't think it's by like the kind of ones we listen to or anything like that. It's <laughs> And uh, not by us. Yeah. Some people that just listen to us for true crime cases. Maybe just my family. I don't know. Well, not Ressa. My sister does listen to My Favorite Murder, too. But the other ones, like my mom and my brother, I'm like, you just listen to me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Damn. Well, I don't have anything much more happy than that, but... Might not be something you've heard about. So I'm excited. Interesting. Uh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) It's like you should be terrified. No, Uh, it's not great, but that's what we do here on True Crime Week. So yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard of this one. To be yeah. honest, it should be enlightening, maybe. Um, and it does have kind of an ironic name because it tends to go by, like, on Wikipedia and stuff, the Happy Land Club Fire. Happy Land <laughs> Club Fire. Okay. I don't, it's not ringing a bell. I don't think no, I know this one. Me neither. Um, but the club happened to be called happy land so that's just what okay prompted it and yeah it was definitely kind of before our time like i was two it was march 25th 1990 yeah i was negative five that's what i was saying it's pre-5 i know it's like i don't know many cases from the 90s necessarily except for maybe yeah john bonnet is from the 90s and i'm like okay well know that one but yeah, I did not know this one. That's for sure. It's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, and this one's just basically one incident. Like I said, it's different than yours. And that's kind of how I ended up going that direction. Because there was... Oh, man. The shortlist for arson cases is like... There are some oh, serial yeah. arsonists. And they are scary yeah. as fuck. Yeah. And I was like, if you're already doing one of those, maybe I will pick something slightly different. Yeah, it works good. Yeah, I'm like, not that it's less scary, but at least it's shorter, maybe. Um, I don't know. Um, But yeah, definitely didn't know about it. And um, this Happy Land Club nightclub was on the second floor of a, quote, rundown building on Southern Boulevard in the East Tremont neighborhood of the Bronx. Hmm. So it reminds me of one that um, I've been to before that Pat went to DJ at that was located on the second floor of a building. I think there might have been like a convenience store or some other business on the first floor. Oh, yeah. 
it's here in Edmonton. Um, I just, it was called the level two and you did have to walk up the steps to get to the club. So it just, it had one entrance, which was the stairs. It is different and it's very similar in that way to this place. Oh, okay. Because of the stairs. Yeah. So it's packed. It's actually a Sunday night. Um, but many young people are out. There are many of them Honduran immigrants celebrating Carnival. Uh, they're having a good time. Um, and one club goer is Julio Gonzalez and his girlfriend Lydia Fel- Feliciano. And Lydia had recently just stopped working at the club as a coat check girl. She had worked there. This was her boyfriend, and either she just stopped working there or wanted to stop working there. And her boyfriend, Julio, happened to grow up in Holguin, Cuba. You know what? I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, to be honest. I couldn't help you. (laughs) Ironically, my mom said she just... She was like, oh, yeah, we just sent your parcel off for your birthdays and stuff because I'm going to Cuba. And I was like, oh, okay, have fun. (laughs) Oh, nice. I know. Must be nice to be retired and like travel and stuff, right? (laughs) Yeah. But she was like, I just send off your Valentine's Day slash Pat's birthday slash your birthday parcel. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And she was like, sweet. Don't open your stuff until your birthday. Because <laughs> they're all within two weeks of each other. Yeah. It's like Valentine's Day, then two weeks later is Pat's birthday, then two weeks later is my birthday. It's all crazy. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> Anywho. Um, so yeah, it happens to be packed for them that night. And Julio Gonzalez is there with his girlfriend Lydia Feliciano. And... Well, we only know much about more about Julio, who grew up in Holguin, Cuba in the 1950s, who was born October 10th, 1954. And he went on to serve three years um, for deserting the Cuban army, army in the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah, he got a little bit in trouble there for not sticking with them. <laughs> um. And then he eventually joined something called the, quote, Mariel Boat Lift, which I hadn't heard of. It has nothing to do with boats no. that I can see. Okay. <laughs> I have no, no idea. I know, right? Oh, my God. I Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. But last time I cut out something where we, I was like, wait, it's like that railroad to Canada. And then I cut it out because I couldn't remember, like, Underground Railroad. And I was like, oh, my God. It sounds so stupid. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the Mariel Boat Lift was an effort organized by Cuban American but citizens, I guess, and agreed to by the Cuban government that brought thousands of Cuban asylum seekers to the U.S. Oh, okay. Before Trump, they were letting people in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But as it later came out that many of those refugees had been recently released from jails and mental hospitals. So that wasn't that great. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And that 
honestly, that's I didn't dive deeper into it. I don't know, but it, it applied to his situation. Because, in fact, Julio Gonzalez had actually faked a drug dealing history to get into the country of the United States via oh my this God. program. You yeah. faked a drug dealing? Oh, wow. Okay. That's... I guess because it brought people that were from jails and mental hospitals, so he pretended he was from a jail? That's my... Wow. So they only wanted criminals. They, like... We'll take your sick, your weak, your poor, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're criminally convicted. <laughs> Only <laughs> con men. You're not. If you're not a drug dealer, we don't want you. Oh my gosh. Don't even wow. get me started. I love watching Arrested Development where they joke about like Lucille is like, that was my idea to build a wall and all this different stuff. Oh yeah. Anyway, it's she's not like Trump necessarily. She's just a drunk grandma, but it's funny. Yeah. Um, okay, so he first found himself, Julio did, in Florida for a while, then he bopped around to Wisconsin, Arkansas, and finally settled in New York State, where shortly before the night of March 25th, 1990, or perhaps on that night, I wasn't too sure, he definitely does get fired from his job at a lamp warehouse, um, I guess. Okay. Yeah, so... He's not happy about that. Um, the fateful night he decides to go into the club and th- that whether it was on that night he got fired, I'm not sure. But on the night of March 25th, he goes into the club like many others where he apparently gets into an argument with his girlfriend, Lydia. Um, and they had had kind of a tumultuous relationship that was kind of on again, off again for about six years. Mm. Yeah. So, at the time, she had been working at the club as a coat check girl. Um, And apparently the argument had something to do with that. Whether she quit or he didn't want her working there anymore. It's, like, unclear, but the relationship was kind of on the rocks. And then they're kind of fighting. And he kind of grabs her in some way. And that's when a bounder, like bouncer sorry has to intervene oh okay yeah like it's it's not going great he gets told by the bouncer to leave because they're fighting and he gets completely kicked out of the club by 3 a.m which is like way later than they're ever open these days but (laughs) three yeah jeez but it's also due to be noted that the club itself was way overdue to be closed because it did not meet fire regulations. Yeah. Um, the building had been ordered to shut down just months before in November of, um, I think the year before. So just a few months before and the operators were facing eviction because the bar lacked proper fire exits sprinklers and alarms and there weren't really even any windows on the second floor oh geez that doesn't sound good i know it sounds like a cell a cell block (laughs) yeah um so after julio gonzalez got into a fight with his girlfriend there he then walked three blocks to an amico service station where he found an empty one gallon jug and bought a dollar worth of gas 
Jesus. Which I couldn't find the exact time money converter. Or if there's oh, a God. website actually called that. But apparently it's about $2.30 today, U.S. Um, according to the U.S. inflation calculator. <laughs> so a couple so, gallons, probably. Yeah, not a lot, obviously. Yeah. Um, where he headed back to the club where the DJ, uh, Ruben Valadares, was playing a mix of reggae, salsa, merengue, and calypso music on actual vinyl. <laughs> Which you'll Jeez, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was the 80s. Uh, he was actually playing a reggae song called Young Love by Coco T when Julio got, Julio, no, when Julio <laughs> got back. <laughs> Damn it. He went right up to the only functional entrance slash exit for the whole building at the time, the rickety stairwell, and doused it in gas through a match. And most things said he left before the massacre was even complete, that he went home and went to bed. Oh my god, what a psycho. I know, that makes it sound really bad. One source I found said that he went across the street and watched it like a supervillain. And I was like, I just don't know. That sounds even harder to believe. (laughs) Like, either way that you would just... Like, condemn that many people to die because you got an argument with your girlfriend, got fired or some shit. Right? Like, this is apparently a person that should not have ever had that much alcohol or yeah, whatever. I don't know. There were screams of fire, fire that suddenly cut through the din. Uh, Remembers one Felipe Figuero, one of the extremely few survivors. He ran straight down the stairs and out of the building. Jeez. And Ruben Valadares, the DJ, recalled, I heard a lot of people screaming. When I run to the door, I call everybody. I say, if someone's going to leave, follow me. Then when I left, I was on flame all over my body. Jeez. I don't know if I'd have the ball, like, guts to run through a wall of fire. Yeah. It's hard to say what was on fire when he started to leave, but it was so quick. From the sounds of it, it was minutes. So, like, ugh. I know, I keep, then the only thing I could picture for this one, I don't know if we were talking about that beforehand, but how it's hard to picture houses, like stuff that you haven't, building layouts and stuff you haven't seen. But I'm like, I've literally been to a bar that was on the second floor and it only had a, one exit and that's all I could picture when I see this I'm like oh my god you'd be fucking screwed if that one exit was on fire yeah yeah um people tried to flee and were either trampled or caught up in the crush of people many dying of smoke inhalation um and actually just three minutes after it had broken out the firefighters were actually on the scene um yeah, it seems like they got there quick, right? Yeah, that sounds pretty quick. Yeah, it's a big city. Like, they're in New York. Um, yeah. The Bronx, whatever. Um, EMS Lieutenant Roy David saw Ruben the DJ staggering out of the burning building, his clothes fused to his skin and unable to speak. Oh, jeez. It's quite a picture. 
firefighters saw bodies just littering the stairwell piled up all the way to the second floor, just piled there like sandbags. Um, and actually, ironically, Julio Gonzalez's girlfriend, Lydia, who he had fought with, was one of the only six survivors of the blaze. Jesus. Yeah. And the other 87 people died. Oh my god. I know. This one's really bad. It's all in one shot. Um, about, I'm just going to get it over with. About 90 children were left orphaned by the travesty. They said that more Jesus. than 40 parents lost sons or daughters. And five were high school students at the near, nearby high school, Theodore Roosevelt High. And that made Gonzalez the single worst mass murderer in U.S. history at the time. I'm not sure if he's, like, actually been surpassed. Because it was all in one go. At the time. Yeah. Yeah, Sounds and, like they're saying that, but I don't know who would have done more than 80 at one shot. Right? Like, right? <sighs> Even most serial killers don't necessarily get up to 87 people. Yeah, that's the thing. It's rough. Um, And... Honestly, the firefighters were really good. It said 150 firefighters put out the Inferno in, like, five minutes. But the damage was obviously done. Yeah. Um, one recalled, there was one in the street telling us there were loads of people inside trapped. We couldn't hear anybody screaming. We didn't hear anybody yelling. There was no one hollering. End quote. So, they wanted to save people, but nobody was there to be saved this is really yeah, bad they're probably passed out right everybody try to make it down that one fucking exit ugh yeah um another gave a different breakdown of how it was 61 men and 26 women that died from a combination of smoke inhalation or in the rush for the door so Seven victims were actually all from one family. Oh my god. I, I know, I don't know if they were cousins or what, but at least six people were found trampled to death right at the doorway, and others were found hugging each other under the tables and hiding behind the bar. Jeez. I know. This part just, like, makes me think of, like, Pompeii or something. It said that one person was still even holding a fire extinguisher right in their hands. Wow. Yeah. How quick would that Just, like, their, like, statues, like, just frozen. Yeah. It's so scary. Um, at least with the investigation, um... Julio Gonzalez's girlfriend told the police immediately about their argument and so they tracked him down and he confessed actually without much coercion at all. Good, yeah, because he did it. Yeah, like thank God they didn't have to fight this part, but you know, doesn't really help, I guess, but he did admit, or he admitted, quote, I got angry, the devil got in me, and I set the fire. 
some mm. devil. You just like murdered eighty people. Oh, I know. Like literally, like almost a hundred. You're just like, oh. How did you not think of your actions? Yeah. And also, for some reason, he was he pled not guilty, whether advised to or not. I'm not sure. But, thankfully, was found guilty by Justice Roberts on September 19th, 1991. That's good. That's good. The 87 concurrent life sentences handed down was the absolute maximum allowed and was the longest ever handed down in New York and probably maybe still is. I'm not sure. I didn't confirm that either. But he deserves all of them. Like, yeah, yeah. Life sentences for all of them. I thought, good. oh my god, that's the longest I've like ever heard of. Yeah. Because most <sighs> even like serial killers that go on like a killing spree, they're normally convicted yeah. of like three or four. Like, or yeah, exactly. However many they have evidence for reasonably. Yeah. Um, the Bronx DD, was that? Did I mean, I think I meant district attorney. Robert T. Johnson said, the maximum of 25 years to life doesn't nearly reach the level of premeditation in this crime. Yeah. And another quote was from a victim's family. It wasn't enough. I wanted the death sentence, said Maria Colon, who sat with her daughter Maria, 14, and her son Ramon, 11, clutching a bouquet of violets and roses for her husband, Raymond, who had died in the fire. I wanted him to be there with the 87 people who died, end quote. Jeez. The plaza that had had the club in it was renamed the Plaza of the 87. The tragedy was commemorated in several songs as well, apparently by Duran Duran with The Sins of the City, Happy Land by Joe Jackson and You, Me, Him, and Her by Jay-Z. None of which I've heard. But I want to check out now, actually. That's a wide range of people, Duran Duran and Jay-Z. And I'm curious about the name of the Jay-Z song, You, Me, Him, and Her. Maybe just referring to the victims, you know, just because they happen to be whoever was at the bar. You don't expect to go to a bar and just. That's the thing. I was going to say nowadays, but this was the 90s. Like. Yeah. Like, fuck. Yeah, it could happen to anybody kind of thing. Like, yeah, it was just what back then, because he couldn't get access to a gun, probably is why he used fire. Like, nowadays it would have been just him walking in with a gun and he would have mowed down 80 people. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like a school shooting, like a mass shooting type of. Yeah, of like just a petty bullshit. I had an argument with my girlfriend. I'm going to murder eight people. Or I don't agree with this tenant that maybe you support and I shoot up your whole church or whatever. Like just people that are basically innocent have nothing to do with you. You don't know them personally, most. And. They yeah. just die. Yeah, and his he had a fight with the girlfriend and was pissed off at the bouncer. And not, as far as I know, neither of them died. The girlfriend didn't. Wow. 
yeah, it's bizarre. So stupid. Useless. And yet, this is one of my shortest cases, you guys. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe because I couldn't stand it anymore. Um, <laughs> they said that a, quote, river of tears, or Rio de Lagrimas, started at the Riviera Funeral Home on Bathgate Avenue, where 17 of the victims were laid to rest. Wow. <sighs> so many. And... Um, Julio was first eligible for parole in March of 2015, which was 25 years after he had been convicted. During an interview at the time, he said he didn't realize how many people were there that day. He had nothing against them and that all his anger was towards the bouncer. Towards the bouncer. Well, I... I know it's so unclear to me. It's obviously some fight between him, his girlfriend, the bouncer. Yeah, weird. Something about she didn't want to work there anymore. Obviously, nothing that warrants him killing this many people. No, even if there's twenty people in there, it's like yeah. What are you mad about? Like, go home and fucking sleep it off, buddy. Yeah. But what he said was, he told me he was going to hit me, referring to the bouncer. He said, and I told him I was going to leave, but I was coming back, end quote. However, thankfully, the parole board decided that he would, quote, not live at liberty without again violating the law. So they didn't think he could be let out again. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that, uh, quote, releasing him would be incompatible with the welfare of society. <laughs> and a quote from the EMS specialist on the scene, Chris McCarthy, uh, he said that this was the worst thing I've ever seen in my career. It was sickening. I saw wall-to-wall bodies, an indication of mass confusion and panic. Most of the bodies were in dance clothes. They were out to have fun. Yeah. <sighs> so sad. Um, now, to end his life, Julio Gonzalez died in September of 2016 at the age of 61. And he died of a heart attack at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, New York. Oh, oh that's okay. How you say it. Yeah, so he has passed now. Jeez. That's good. Well, at least he was in prison for like oh. 26 years. Or oh, 20, yeah. Over 20 years. That's good. Because yeah, in 2015 it was 25. So yeah, over 25 yeah. years. Oh, yeah. Geez. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly think he, that he it didn't sound like he was violent very much after that, which is just like how the fuck? Can someone yeah. just, like, being drunk or whatever, exactly, you know, and angry lead to this Molotov cocktail of emotions, yeah. but... Scary. So scary. Yeah, exactly, and I would hope that this had, you know, fixed him or whatever, but who knows, right? Maybe he yeah. wouldn't have been let out, you know, let, you know good. Whatever. <laughs> let out good. You know what I mean. Um... To end it, though, it it was very interesting when I was researching this to learn that in kind of a tragic twist of fate, 
the Happy Land fire had occurred 79 years to the day after another horrible fire in New York City. So, okay, it's kind of weird. Um, now, this wasn't pegged as an arson, but it happened at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in Lower Manhattan, and it killed 149 garment workers. Jesus. Yeah, so that's, I think, that's still maybe the most deadly one. It obviously killed, like, twice as many as as this case. Um, and most or many of them were young female immigrant workers, some as, as young as 14. Jeez. <sighs> yeah, that's rough. They had produced women's blouses, um, and that fire was the deadliest industrial disaster in the city's history at the time. And one of the deadly, deadliest in U.S. history. And they said it happened on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Osh building. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but it was later renamed the Brown building. So it was higher up on the floors, so that really had to do yeah. with it. Um, but I just thought that was crazy how it happened to the day, 79 years yeah. after. So wow. weird. And... Um, that one was, it did sound like was more, um, miss, I don't know, misdeeds, like, neglect, um, uh, you know, rather than outright arson, I guess. Yeah. Because one of the quotes, because the doors to the stairwells and exits were locked, a common practice at the time to prevent workers from taking unauthorized breaks and to reduce theft. <laughs> Wow, just locked them <laughs> in the fucking room. Yep. Jesus. I know, it gives you an insight into the fire regulations. That's only half of the quote. Yeah, I was just going to say fire exits. Many of the workers could not escape from the burning building and jumped oh. from the high windows. The oh fire led to the legislation, sorry, legislation requiring improved factory safety standards and helped spur the growth of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union which fought for better working conditions for sweatshop workers. Uh, I know, isn't that sad? Jumping out of an eight or nine story window because the doors are fucking locked. Oh yeah, at the time, they were saying those were the highest levels in the building. Um, I feel like I've heard other stories like this, maybe too, on other podcasts where they're like, oh, this was a horrible fire, and people had to just, like, jump for their lives and hope for it. Uh. Um, but strangely enough, in that case, there was no sign of arson. Um, yeah. From my skimming on Wikipedia, it's I basically learned in that fire anyway, because apparently the owners of that building had a history of their buildings burning down. Maybe for insurance money? Maybe yeah. that's why they didn't want to put in so many fire regulations because they wanted to make the money if their building burned down. Um, but after the actual Happy Land Club fire in the, what did we say, the 91, whenever it was, <laughs> 90s, um, the regulations were finally strengthened and many places were actually shut down. So... About one-third of the 1,500 clubs and businesses that were inspected were shut down, and of those, 320 were never reopened. 
So Jeez. they did finally some reform that would hope to prevent this stuff in the future. Yeah. People hate safety, but I mean, it's there for a reason. Who you cares? It's so a fire careful. exit. Yeah, you get some, yeah. you know, you get some doors. You have a stairwell. Like, you need to have a fire exit. Jeez. It's important. Oh, yeah, so and that is my case and a half. <laughs> Jeez. Makes me want to not leave my house. Thanks. Oh, no. We don't want to turn into those true crime podcasters that are like, fresh air is for dead people. We never go anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want it. agoraphobia. So it's like, yeah. afraid oh to leave your house. That can happen. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Little, little sprinkle some trauma in there. Um, <laughs> but no, that I knew that one was going to be kind of a rough one. I'm sorry. Jeez, that was... wow. I, and there was like, I'm like, is this worse to cover? Or the one where like someone's an arsonist from like the time they're a kid and they you know killed people that way but this one they just killed a bunch of people in one fell swoop without any regard for human life almost yeah it's so ridiculous i can't believe it just like oh i'm leaving but i'll be back and it just goes to a fucking gas station and buys gas like that's the first thought that enters your head is just burn it to the ground Right? Like, how fucked up are you at the time that you're, that is yeah, your thought? That's and, wild. Um, yeah, one thing I read, I think that um, at first one of the gas station attendants didn't want to sell him gas. I don't know if because he was drunk or whatever, but someone else was like, no, no, I know him. He's a cool, like, he's fine. I know oh, this dude. You can go ahead and sell it to him. Oh my god. And so he sold him the gas. A dollar worth of fucking gas, and it killed, uh, yeah, almost 90 people. Well, yeah, because it'd be a little strange somebody showing up without a car at a gas station. Yeah. Exactly. Three Even if in the, the morning. 90s. Yes. I can't believe how late they were open. The, the gas station, the club, like, yeah, the club mostly, they have to close by two usually. Yeah. And then he just waltzes back and, like, sets the place on fire. It's. Jeez. Awful, awful. Well, we both could say thanks, I hate it. To each oh, other. yeah. <laughs> Sorry about it, you guys. Um, yeah. We hope you like the funny cryptids the last week because <laughs> <laughs> now it was not so funny, but the yeah. cryptids were funny. Huh? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Goose stepping around. That made me laugh when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> He's just goose stepping around the woods. <laughs> yeah. Because you said he's endlessly marching or yeah. stops to lean against a tree. I was like, fucking Nazi. <laughs> that guy is very weird. He's got long lip, legs that don't bend, <laughs> corrugated yeah. ears. There's a lot going on. There. Yeah, it looks like he's got fish gills like yours i'm just like you lumberjacks from the 1800s have a lot of imagination you came up with all these and hoogogs and axe handle hounds and all these other weird creatures yeah but maybe we'll see one someday and we'll be foot in our mouths (laughs) i would love to see an axe handle hound i know 
if all they're going to do is steal my axe hand, axe, whatever. As long as you don't right. chop off my foot. <laughs> well, I guess we'll see you next week for a very special Swedish folklore episode. Yes. So, exciting. We love our folklore. I'm ones. excited. Oh my god, they're so funny. I love the fairy tale parts of yeah. them. They're amazing. <laughs> I'm really excited. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. See you next week. Keep it cryptic. has been castles and cryptids you can listen to our podcast on spotify apple podcast google podcast anchor breaker pocket cast and our youtube channel please rate review and subscribe wherever you listen follow us on instagram facebook and reddit on our website you can listen to all of our episodes as well as view pictures for each of our segments Check out our Patreon page to view all of our tiers and become a Patreon supporter today to unlock monthly bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes content. We are working on an Ask Us Anything. You can submit questions by social media or by email at castlesencryptids at gmail.com. Do you have a spooky ghost story, a creepy cryptid sighting, or a thrilling true crime tale you would like to share and have us include in a future episode? Send us your listener story by social media or by email please include the name that you would like mentioned. Our music is by Kobe Fair. Our logo and artwork is by Antonio Garcia. Thanks for listening.